That is the sound you never want to hear. It's the sound of the warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the week podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island. Today we'll be talking with author Kristen Iverson about her book, Full Body Burden, Growing Up in the Nuclear Shadow of Rocky Flats. It's a brilliantly well-researched and deeply personal book about the Colorado nuclear weapons manufacturing plant near Denver, which has been called one of the most polluted nuclear sites in the nation. A powerfully written book and a great read. That interview will be coming up in about 10 minutes. Today is Tuesday, October 9th, 2012, and here is the week's nuclear news. We're going to be focusing on Japan this week because there are a lot of pieces coming out that deserve to be woven into a single picture. Even though Japan has declared that it's going to be nuke-free by perhaps sometime in the 2030s, kind of, sort of, maybe, it appears that official pronouncements say yes, while the answer is actually hell no. Japan's newly established Nuclear Regulation Authority, the NRA, aims to have a new safety legal framework in place by July of 2013 to enable the country's idled nuclear power reactors to restart. However, there appears to be confusion as to who will ultimately be responsible for granting approval for the reactors to restart. Last week, Industry Minister Yukio Idano said that reactors would be permitted to resume operation, quote, if the Nuclear Regulatory Agency has given the green light to safety and if local governments have shown their understanding. This suggests that once clearing safety checks of the NRA, utilities would need to seek permission from local governments for the restart of their reactors. The central government, Idano said, is in no position to declare that they are safe. Then who is? Answer, nobody, because they are not safe, period. And all this official posturing is just passing around a hot potato that nobody wants to claim. Mitsui Murata, the former Japanese ambassador to Switzerland, has stated about Unit 4 that because its ground has been sinking, It is now in danger of collapsing. According to Secretary of former Prime Minister Khan, the ground level of the building, Unit 4, has been sinking and is now at 31.5 inches. It has been sinking unevenly. Because the ground itself has problem, whether the building can resist a quake bigger than magnitude 6 still remains a question. Former Ambassador Murata went on to say, In the U.S., there are 31 units of the same type of that of the Fukushima nuclear plant. Actually, there are 23 Mark I reactors and 8 Mark II reactors, which does bring the total to 31. Going back to Ambassador Murata. So if the accident be spread too far, that really embarrasses the U.S. So that is why the crisis of Unit 4 has been toned down recently. The USA is actually the main reason. In an interview with nuclear engineer Chris Harris in Nutramedical Report, the former licensed senior reactor operator and engineer said, Their own word is that TEPCO believes that the core is definitely eating through the floor. It's already gone through the bottom of at least number one's reactor vessel. And the TEPCO engineer said it would be eating its way through the concrete. 
I probably believe that it's already eaten through the concrete. This is the worst possible scenario. Even Commissioner William D. Magwood of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, one of the staunchest supporters for nuclear energy on that commission, recently said, It is very difficult to overstate how difficult the work is going to be at that site, meaning Fukushima. There will need to be new technologies and new methodologies created to be able to enable them to clean the site up. And some of these technologies don't exist yet. So there's a long way to go with that. There's a long, long way to go. In Japan, over 1,300 residents of Fukushima have filed a criminal complaint against TEPCO and the Japanese government. According to Japanese legal expert, attorney Hiroyuki Kawai, another accident will mean no future for the country. We are people who are tackling the most important issue for Japan. Please be confident in yourselves and spread this movement further. Here's some food update information from Japan, none of it good. Recent tweets by Fukushima Farm Sanctuary, a farm inside the 20-kilometer evacuation zone, was translated by our friend Yori Muchizuki and Fukushima Diary. In this series of tweets, it said on October 5th, Four cattle have died since yesterday. One more calf is about to die. I'm worried about radiation. The next day, three died yesterday. The day after that, from a rancher in Fukushima, diarrhea like water, snivel, spreading dermatitis, their immune system is being weakened. It might be because of simply the lack of nutrition, epidemic disease, or radiation exposure. Probably it's only in this hazard area where series of cattle die one after one. We call it Fukushima syndrome, which is born from TEPCO and the government. If it's happening to the cattle, why do we think it is not also happening to human beings? Arnie Gunderson was interviewed on October 2nd on the BEZ, on WBEZ Radio, and he said, I'm coming up with something on the order of a million cancers. We're seeing that already. Kids were tested in the last couple months, and almost half of them had thyroid nodules and cysts. The exact number is 43%. Normally, about 1 to 2% of kids would have thyroid nodules, so we're seeing an enormous increase in cancer precursors for thyroid cancers. Assistant Professor Hiroaki Koide of the Kyoto University Research Reactor Institute is quoted as saying in a transcript from a speech, There is no such thing as clean food. The Fukushima accident has happened, and a tremendous amount of radiation has already been released and spread throughout the planet. That's why there is no longer any such thing as clean and safe food. Our only choice is whether we accept that or not. He went on to say, I do have one proposal. The people who advanced nuclear power be made to eat extremely contaminated food. People like the managing director of TEPCO or members of the parliament, academics who promoted nuclear power. I also have a proposal that the relatively contaminated food be fed to the adults who have accepted the nuclear power industry and the relatively uncontaminated food be fed to children. In the film Fukushima Never Again, there's a chilling scene where a mother confronts an official of the government. Sachiko Sato, who's a mother and farmer in Fukushima, said, let us put this soil from a school ground of Fukushima while we are talking, and she attempted to spread the dirt there. 
Itaru Watanabe, Policy Bureau of the Ministry of Education, Culture, Sports, Science, and Technology, responded, We do not believe it is necessary to remove the topsoil, meaning from the children's schools and playgrounds, to which Sachiko Sato responded, Mr. Watanabe, then please lick that soil. Please lick it. Children lick the soil. Please take the soil in your hand and lick it. Playing baseball means that it gets into the children's mouths. It is not reported whether Mr. Watanabe actually did lick the soil, but we suspect that he did not. There are going to be two videos up on the nuclear hot seat site that are both chilling. In the first one, you can watch as Japanese children run a marathon on a street that has radioactivity of 134,000 becquerels per square meter. In the second one, you can watch children exercise on top of a surface that has radioactivity above 120,000 becquerels per square meter. And with it comes the plea from the person posting these. Nineteen months have passed since Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. The situation has deteriorated. Children of Fukushima will be killed by the government. Someone please help the children of Koryama. Fukushima will be collapsing. You know, I like to give a Numbnuts of the Week award for nuclear insanity, but this goes beyond numbnuts. It goes into genocide. And we need to start using that word in connection with what the Japanese government is doing to its children and its citizens. Now on to our interview. I heard today's interviewee speak twice at the Coalition Against Nukes Rally for a Nuclear-Free Future, which was held in September in Washington, D.C. After I heard her, I couldn't wait to get her on nuclear hot seat. Christian Iverson grew up in Arvada, Colorado, near the Rocky Flats Nuclear Weaponry Facility. She is an associate professor at the University of Memphis, where she directs the MFA program in creative writing. As a writer, her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, Reader's Digest, among others, and she has appeared on C-SPAN and NPR's Fresh Air. In addition to her other books, she is the author of Full Body Burden, Growing Up in the Nuclear Shadow of Rocky Flats, and that's why we're speaking with her today. Kristen, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much for having me today. My pleasure. When you were growing up, how close did you live to Rocky Flats, and what, if anything, did you think or know about it? Well, when I was a, when I was a baby, we had a house in what's now called Old Town Arvada, which is about seven miles from the Rocky Flats nuclear weapons plant. And then when I was around 11, um, my parents built a new house out of one of the new subdivisions that were springing up right around the plant, and that was around, about three miles uh, from the plant. And when I was a kid, we had no idea what was going on at Rocky Flats. It was operated by Dow Chemical at the time, and the rumor in the neighborhood was that they were making household cleaning supplies. My mother thought they were making scrubbing bubbles. Was there any concern at all, any worry about what was made there or any possible contamination that might result? Well, as as residents, um, we had no idea of the environmental contamination. That didn't come out until much, much later, the extensive toxic and radioactive contamination that was um, moving directly into the neighborhoods, into my neighborhood. Um, so we really didn't have any idea. And there was so much secrecy around the plant 
in the beginning that was due to the Cold War, of course, but then as time went on, I think there were a number of other reasons as well. Uh, many of the kids that I knew growing up, their parents worked at Rocky Flats, and the workers were not allowed to talk about their work. Everything was secret, even workers at the plant uh, itself didn't know what other workers within the same area did. And so people would make things up about what they did. They wouldn't be allowed to talk to their families, um, so they would they would make up all kinds of stories about what was actually going on. Did this lead to any suspicion, or everybody just went, okay, fine, that's just what the way it is, and, and ignore it? Well, a combination of things. I, I think there was always a great deal of, of mystery and fear and suspicion about Rocky Flats, and particularly uh, in the 1970s with some of the activists and people who were protesting out there, you know, people began to wonder. But there were so many complicated feelings and emotions about Rocky Flats. Um, some people, of course, felt that the plant was necessary, that, that we were winning the Cold War, that we won the Cold War because of what happened at Rocky Flats and the plutonium triggers that were produced there. Others, I think, um, and I think this is a very common thing for other facilities like this around the country, when you have a community that is so economically dependent upon something like this, people are, you know, they have homes and properties and, and they kind of want to look the other way. Um, of course, at the same time, many people were very concerned about what was going on and any potential negative effect on their on their children. I have to say one of the hardest things when I was writing this book was letting my parents, my mother and father, know what it was um, that actually went on in the extent of contamination. They thought they were raising their children in, in the perfect environment, an idyllic environment. As a young single mother, you were even one of those people who were economically dependent upon Rocky Flats for a while. You worked there. What kind of a job did you have? And even when you worked there, how aware were you of what the facility was actually doing? Well, I look back on this, um, it was it's kind of an astonishing thing to think about at this point. I had just come back, um, I'd worked in a, as a travel writer in Europe for a couple of years and just come back to go to graduate school, and I was a single parent. And looking, I was looking for a job to help put myself through graduate school, and I saw an ad in the paper. They had changed the name at Rocky Flats um, to the Rocky Flats Environmental Technology Site. That, that, uh, that it makes name, it sound so much greener. <laughs> Exactly. I thought, oh, my gosh, they must have fixed everything up out there. And, of course, they hadn't. Um, and, but when I first went to work out there, I was very naive about what was going on. And I worked in the administration building, and I put together various reports um, from project managers and different managers around the plant, and those reports were sent on to Washington and Albuquerque and other places like that. So I was writing up things, writing about things that I didn't really fully understand at the time. While you were there, at some point you decided to keep a journal and start taking notes about what you were doing for your employer. That's not usual behavior for somebody who's working in a secretarial or a lower-level administrative job. What moved you to do so? Well, I think for one thing it's important to say that I've, I've always been a writer and I've always uh, I take notes on everything, you know, regardless of what I'm doing and what I'm experiencing. But I also was enormously curious about when, what went on at Rocky Flats and what it would feel like to work there and to be there and get to know, uh, you know, some of the people who work there and have a sense of it. Rocky Flats was the big secret of my childhood, the big monolith of my childhood, and I really wanted to understand. So I, I wrote everything down and kept very careful notes of everything that was going on, and um, and it also it frightened me a little bit, and I wanted to be aware of as much as I could of what was going on. 
And I have to say, it wasn't until uh, one night when I, uh, one after late afternoon, I came home from work and um, fixed my kids their supper and put them to bed and came downstairs and turned on the television. And there was a Nightline expose on Rocky Flats. And uh, Department of Energy manager Mark Silverman was talking about uh, the extensive contamination and the fact that there was more than 14 tons of plutonium, much of it unsafely stored, at the plant. And uh, I was stunned. It was um, the first time that I really had a sense of what was going on, and that was true for a lot of people in, in the community and at the plant. Uh, I was absolutely stunned, and I could not believe that here I had grown up next to this plant, and I had worked at the plant, and I had no idea of the extensive um, toxic and radioactive contamination and what was going on. That was the moment that I knew I was going to quit my job, and the day I quit was the day that I knew I was going to write a book. And it I'm just came to I... you as a result of the Im- the emotional impact of all of this. Primarily, yes. Mm-hmm. That was the first time that I had actual verification uh, of what was going on. And it was stunning to me that they were interviewing people that I worked with on a daily basis uh, out at Rocky Flats. Um, it was a bit, Mark Silverman was one of the few managers out there at the time who um, felt that it was important for the public to begin to have a sense of, of what was going on and the kinds of costs and risks that we were um, involved with. You did massive research for this book, and one of the things that makes Full Body Burden so engrossing a read is that in addition to the investigative reporting that you did and putting it really well into the context of the Cold War, you tell your family's personal story. What led you to decide to include this personal information as well as the nuclear information and the political information? Well, I wanted to put a human face on what I felt ultimately was a very inhumane story. And I wanted to tell the story of Rocky Flats through the eyes of the people who lived it, um, the people whose lives were affected by Rocky Flats, the workers, residents, um, activists, uh, everyone from Daniel Ellsberg to some of the nuns who protested out there, uh, and then people in my own neighborhood. Um, many of the kids in my neighborhood, like myself, ended up working at Rocky Flats. And there were many, many people whose whose health and lives were impacted very dramatically. And so I wanted to bring all of these stories together. It took an enormous amount of work and research. Ten years of, of research and writing went into this book. And I wanted it to read like a novel. But everything in the book is true. It's very heavily footnoted and fact-checked. And I wanted to uh, make it a kind of a narrative that people would want to read and read about the characters, the people who are in the story, and really understand the kind of impact that something like Rocky Flats had and continues to have on on people in the Denver area and certainly beyond. It's not just a local story by any means. What were some of the more alarming facts that you discovered in your research? Well, I think uh, a couple come to mind immediately with respect to what was going on at Rocky Flats. One, uh, there were many, many acronyms, um, of course, when I was typing up these reports. And one acronym that I kept coming across was MUF, M-U-F. MUF, what does that, what is that? Well, I later learned that MUF stands for Missing Unaccounted for Plutonium. And it refers to the amount of plutonium that Rocky Flats basically lost over the course of about 38 years. 
and that amount is is more than 3,050 pounds. And this is a Department of Energy figure. Um, other evidence suggests that it's actually much higher than that. And that's kind of an astonishing figure when you consider the fact that a millionth of a gram of plutonium, particularly if it's inhaled into the lungs, can, can cause a health effect or cause cancer. So they lost a lot of material over the years in the pipes, in the, in the ducts. Um, there are a lot of theories. Uh, the Department of Energy says some of that has to do with administrative errors bookkeeping errors, and I'm not sure that's a very comforting fact either. What is the condition of uh, the Rocky Flats site today? Well, Rocky Flats has been cleaned up, although a lot of people uh, would like to call it a, a cover-up rather than a, a clean-up. When I worked at Rocky Flats in 1995, the Department of Energy said that it would take $37 billion and uh, 40 years to clean it up, and they weren't sure that they actually had the technology to do it. Of course, that's that's an impossible figure, and um, what happened was a, a company called Kaiser Hill ended up coming in and doing the cleanup for about $7 billion in less than seven years. And what that means is that we have a, a very we have very compromised cleanup standards. There's still a great deal of contamination, a great deal of plutonium out at the site. 1,300 acres of the site are so profoundly contaminated that they can never, ever be open to the public. The rest of the site has varying levels of contamination, some known and some unknown, and it is uh, destined, it, it's uh, planned to open as a national uh, wildlife refuge and public recreation area for hiking and biking and possibly even hunting at some time in the near future. It's not open at this time. and. This is a contaminated area that's going to be turned into a nature preserve of some sort? The site as a whole is nearly 6,000 acres, and 1,300 acres are so profoundly contaminated it can never open. The rest of the site is slated to open, even though there continue to be contaminants in the soil. That's astonishing. It's like the radiation won't migrate from one location to another with the wind, with the rain, with the various uh, forces of nature. Uh, let's go back to something you alluded to earlier, which is health problems. What, if any, difficulties with health have shown up in your family, among your childhood friends, anything that might be related to the radioactive contamination from Rocky Flats? Well, in my neighborhood, um, there were many families that that were ill, and and there are studies that go all the way back to the 1970s that show higher rates of cancer, leukemia, a number of different uh, health issues, but cancer in particular, brain tumors. We've had some health issues in my family, and, and I've had some health issues. But I think a, a good dramatic example of that is a family directly down the road from us that was a Mormon family. Um, they had uh, they raised their own vegetables, and they had cattle and horses. All of their animals were sterile. They had an organic garden, and we knew this family well because our pony would get into their garden, and I would have to go rescue him, and her, uh, my friend Tamara, her father, would come out and, and yell at us, and that's kind of the relationship we had when, when I was a kid. But as we grew older, um, uh, that family had a lot of health issues, and, and Tamara Smith-Mesa, who's a woman that I write about in the book, uh, in particular, um, had a series, a number of brain tumors. She just had surgery for her eighth brain tumor. And the main difference between my family and, and her family is that uh, my father tried to dig a well, and we never uh, were able to get water, so we had to go on city water. That family had a well that went directly down into the Stanley Lake water table there, and they've been drinking, they drank the water out of the well, and that family has been very, very ill. 
So that has that water been shown to be contaminated by rocky flats? Yes. And I want to say that Stanley Lake, which is um, the lake that was just over the rise from our house and uh, Tamara's house is directly on Stanley Lake, the sediment of that lake is contaminated with plutonium to the present day. And plutonium is heavy. It settles down into the sediment. And although that lake continues to be open, astonishingly, for public recreation, Ah. um, there are signs that say, you know, don't kick up the sediment. My brother was out there not too long ago. Um, He's since moved away. This was a couple of years ago, right before the book came out. And he was out walking his dogs, and the dogs were playing in the the water. And a boat came around, and, and these two officials said, get your dogs out of the water. And he just kind of laughed, and he said, why? And they said, well, because it's a a drinking water. It is indeed. It supplies drinking water for uh, surrounding communities. And Kurt laughed and said, what would a couple of dog hairs, what would that make a difference? And it wasn't the dog hairs. It's the fact that there's plutonium in that sediment, and they don't want it stirred up. Did they actually say that, or that's just your knowledge coming in on this? That's uh, my knowledge. That's that's uh, standard knowledge. I mean, anyone can find out about that. That the sediment is contaminated, but they don't have any signs up out there. And they and they didn't say that to my brother at the time. They just said that it was drinking water, and uh, they didn't want any contaminants in it. Of course, it's already contaminated. Why did you choose the title "Full Body Burden"? What does that mean, and how does it relate to your story? Body burden is a term that refers to the amount of um, radioactive material held within the body um, and that continues to emit a constant and ongoing source of radiation. Full body burden refers to um, the level at which um, the government has determined that a worker in particular has reached the limit and should not have any more exposure to radioactivity. One of the interesting things about that term is that, of course, there are people who've been exposed to much lower levels than that full body burden level, and they become ill. Sometimes people are exposed to higher levels, and they don't become ill. So uh, it's kind of a uh, controversial um, name in a way. I wanted to use it as a title for the book, not only to refer to that particularly, but also um, to work as a kind of metaphor for the book as a whole and to hopefully help the reader to see the many ways in which Rocky Flats, the story of Rocky Flats, has affected not only just the community of Arvada and Colorado, but our country as as a whole with respect to the uh, nuclear weapons and how we tell the story of the Cold War and how we don't tell the story of the Cold War and how eager we are to forget that these things have happened. You've been quoted as saying, I didn't write this book as any sort of polemic or with an agenda in mind, I don't think of myself as an activist, and certainly did not in the beginning. I think of myself as a writer, an investigative journalist, and a memoirist. Yet it can't be denied that your book gives tremendous support to the activist perspective on nuclear issues. So how have you reconciled your intentions in writing the book with the perception that uh, you are indeed an activist on this subject? Well, I think I certainly am an activist now in the sense that I'm very concerned with uh, peace and environmental ju- environmental justice, um, and I, I'm a, much more aware of things in a way that I, I wasn't necessarily before. When I started out to write this book, I wanted to tell the story. Uh, I was very concerned about the fact that um, it was a story that, as I said earlier, people were so willing to forget. There are home builders building houses right up next to the Rocky Flat site on contaminated land, and people don't know. They come in from other places, they buy houses, they don't know. And I thought what was happening 
uh, was terrible, and the fact that that Colorado was uh, working so hard to forget the story and whitewash the story of Rocky Flats, and so that's where I was really coming from in the beginning. And also, it was just an important, such a big, important part of my life. But the story really is the story of my own sense of awakening as a woman, as a writer, as an environmentalist, as a person concerned with peace and environmental justice and bringing these truths to light. So now I very much think of myself as someone who's deeply engaged in these issues and happy to be engaged in these issues in a way that I was not before. And, of course, we welcome you very strongly into the community because you're such a persuasive and uh, articulate person speaking on these issues. Uh, How is the book doing? What's the response been to it in literary as well as activist circles? Well, the book has been doing great, uh, and I've literally been on the road steady since since June, and will continue to be so into the into the spring. It's just kind of astonishing the kind of response that this book has had. It was just reviewed in the New York Times last week. Uh, it's gotten great reviews all around the country, and also in the uh, in the UK. It came out in uh, London and Ireland and Scotland, and people are reading it over there as well. Um, the BBC is going to be doing a, a film about it. It's just kind of astonishing the response that I've had. And I have to say, some of the most powerful emotional response I've had is from people who live in Colorado, around Rocky Flats, or around other uh, similar sites like Hanford or the Savannah River site. People whose lives and health and properties, in fact, have been affected by these plants. And no one's talking about it. No one's recognizing their stories or acknowledging their health issues. And I've received hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of emails um, from people like this, and so many, in fact, that I started a, a website just to post these stories to kind of get them out into the world. If people wish to purchase your book, Full Body Burden, or if they need to get more information about it, where do they need to go? Well, they can go directly to my website, which is just www.kristeniverson.com. And spell them because you have a lot of E's in there. I do. It's all E's. Thank you. It's K-R-I-S-T-E-N-I-V-E-R-S-E-N, Kristen Iverson. That site links to a number of different booksellers, Amazon and also independent bookstores and that sort of thing. So it's easy to purchase the book through the site. And then you can also see some of the reviews and interviews that I've done. And it also links to the website that I mentioned earlier, and that website is falloutreport.com, falloutreport.com, and that um, has news not only about nuclear weapons sites and nuclear facilities, but I'm also posting all of these incredible stories that I get from readers around the country. Anything else that you would like us to know? Well, I think a number of your listeners might be interested in um, some of the maps and charts that I have posted on my webpage and also on Facebook. And these are contamination maps that show the contaminated areas around Rocky Flats and including uh, the plume that from two of the fires that traveled over the city of Denver and exactly where that plume went. And then a number of charts, including a muff chart, missing unaccounted for plutonium, that shows exactly how much was lost over the years, that sort of thing. They're really fascinating maps and charts, and people can find those on uh, my website, kristeniverson.com, under the blog page, or on Facebook, my author page on Facebook, or at falloutreport.com. Well, we will post all of these websites on the nuclearhotseat.com page. Kristen, I want to thank you. This has been a great conversation. I wish you every success with the book. 
Well, thank you so much. It's been a delight to speak with you. Thank you. Christian Iverson is the author of Full Body Burden, Growing Up in the Nuclear Shadow of Rocky Flats. Here's today's final thought. Tonight is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission public meeting on San Onofre. It's taking place at Dana Point on the California coast, and I will be carpooling down with a group of activists to participate. There's no guarantee as to whether I'll be able to deliver my three-minute speech to the assembled group. So I wanted you to hear what I plan to say. My name is Libby Halevi. I live in Los Angeles, and I was one mile from the nuclear reactor at Three Mile Island when the nuclear accident happened there in 1979. So I know what it's like when the experts get it wrong. We are poised right now, right here, on the brink of insanity. That this conversation is even taking place is a madness in and of itself. No one outlives plutonium. Human life itself will not outlive plutonium contamination. Whatever mental construct makes it possible to justify a discussion like this to even take place is delusional. No matter what report he puts in, Elmo Collins, regional administrator of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, will not be on the front lines of radiation contamination should anything go wrong with San Onofre. Elmo Collins lives in Texas. It might be interesting to learn where all these people live who are making life and death decisions about restarting the damaged nuclear reactor at San Onofre. Why are we even pretending this discussion makes sense? It doesn't. Nuclear energy is inherently flawed, like a brand new skyscraper built without toilets. Every day there is more and more waste, no way to compost it and nowhere to put it. But in a skyscraper, we would only be dealing with bodily excrement. Nuclear waste puts shit to shame. Nuclear waste kills, slowly, invisibly, inevitably. It mutates the human genome, the carrier of life's blueprint. It creates monsters of your grandchildren. It twists the future into something we the people cannot imagine and do not desire. And radiation pollution lasts for tens upon tens of thousands of years. We as a species cannot outlive plutonium. And that is the gift that San Onofre has for us, should anything go wrong. If you take one step back from your greed, your obsession with and addiction to money, you will see that there is no justification for nuclear. It's all double talk to protect profits, which will profit us nothing if something goes wrong. And just imagine, if you decide to approve a restart and you are wrong, we will not forget Humanity will not forget. The world will not forget. Forever will not forget. For you will be as Judas. Only what you will have betrayed is the future of life itself. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 9th, 2012. You can find our episodes posted on nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog on the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat pages, and on iTunes Podcasts, where you can subscribe for free. Share us, link to us. This is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So use us as the resource we are. And if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, 
send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, whatever you do, do not go back to sleep. (laughs) 